We're in the middle of the series called Together, and what we are trying to do uh, over these couple of weeks together is really create a theology, or maybe in modern language better, cast a good vision for why we believe that community is actually centrally important to the Christian life. Uh, why we believe that God made us to live in community, and why believe, we believe if we're going to live the lives that God intends us to live, then we got to do it uh, in community. Now, we know that our world projects a different reality. Uh, a rugged individualism is kind of the way American culture is talked about. And uh, many of us live in neighborhoods or places where uh, even if you wanted to know your neighbors and things like that, it's hard to do. Because work commitments and sort of the old, uh, the, rea- the reality we call it the reality of the garage door, right? The reality of the garage door allows people to enter and exit their houses without ever having human contact of any kind. Because you push a button, you never get out of your car, it goes in, you push the button, you're inside your house. And you don't emerge till the next morning when you come out the same way and so forth and so on. And so it's difficult. Uh, but what we believe is that we need to break through sort of that American Western culture of individualism if we're going to really be the kind of people that God calls us to be. And so, uh, a long way of setting this up, that we're called to be people who are together. That we are people who are more defined by the we than the me, is what we talked a lot about last week. And last week we also emphasized the reality that we need to be people who are given to care for each other. And so what that means uh, when we value the we more than the me, is not so much that we're willing to give care to other people. That's really important. And many of us, we want to do that, right? But the other part is actually almost, actually equally true, not almost, it's actually equally true, is that we have to be willing to receive care from other people. Otherwise, we haven't really believed the we is greater than the me. We've just said the me can serve you, <laughs> Right? And so, this idea of giving and receiving care is part of community. And this morning, we want to talk about something that's really critically important uh, in Christianity, but also for us as a church, this idea of growing in the gospel together. Uh, Many of you probably have seen the movie Saving Private Ryan. I was looking this up last night when I was thinking about it, and I was horrified to realize it's almost 20 years old. Can you believe that? Which means that I am very old at this point in my life. And that's, when you're in, when you get to these ages, uh, yeah, whatever. But it's troubling, it's troubling when the bands you like are now on the oldies station. It's troubling when the movies that came out when you were in college are now celebrating 20 year things and so whatever. But you remember the movie Saving Prior Ryan. Probably many of you have seen it. Some of you um, were born the year it was released, I'm guessing, as college students. Uh, Saving Private Ryan tells the story uh, in the midst of the World War II setting, the invasion of Normandy, so forth and so on, of uh, an American soldier named James Ryan, uh, who all of his brothers were killed in action. And so the, the military was wanting to preserve this, this, um, this officer, this man, so that they could send him home because the mother had suffered such a great loss. The family had suffered such a great loss. And so uh, there's a small squadron of soldiers who are sent on the mission to go get him and to bring him home. And you remember Tom Hanks kind of plays the leader of that squadron. 
Uh, and for those of you who have seen it, that they find him and they rescue him, and they're in the process of bringing him home. Uh, and Tom Hanks' character actually dies at the end uh, of the movie, trying to preserve the life of this other man. I know. You get, well, it's 18 years old. You'll, you'll never see it, right? I'm sorry. <laughs> like, it's it's in black and white. You know. It's, it's, <laughs> He dies at the end, and as he's dying, laying on this bridge, uh, he pulls James Ryan character, played by Matt Damon, close to him, and his last words to him are, earn this. Earn this. In other words, you go live a life in response to us saving your life. And friends, what I want to share with you this morning is this is exactly what Paul writes constantly in the New Testament about how we live in light of the gospel. Now, just as a caveat, Paul would never use the phrase earn this, right? Because we don't earn what God has done for us. He would simply say, live in response to this. Think about it. Jesus is on the cross. He has died to save your life so that you can be reunited with your Father God. And He says to you in His dying breath and in the power of the resurrection, now live in response to this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, I want to read this little section of Scripture with you and we'll kind of concentrate here this morning. Paul, as in almost all of his letters to churches, reflects on this reality. Listen to this. 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 1. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know. But with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know, we never use flattery, nor do we put a mask and cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise, even from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ... We could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as nursing mothers care for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. So right at the end of the section, Paul sort of gives the purpose statement, right? The entire purpose of his whole ministry And really the entire purpose of the whole Christian life that we are called to live is that we would be people who are worthy of God. Live lives worthy of God. Paul uses this phrase countless times. Sometimes it's called worthy of the gospel. Sometimes it's called worthy of God. 
And what he's really saying is we need to be people who live in light of what God has done for us. Now, I want to take you on a little bit of a narrative journey uh, to help us try to give sort of the rich history of what this phrase really means. Uh, Once we kind of develop that, we'll go back and look some more into the context of 1 Thessalonians 2 and sort of figure out how we we pursue this life that's worthy of God uh, and what it means to do that. So, uh, worthy of God, to, to walk worthy of God is what he's saying. A life worthy of God, to walk worthy, he says elsewhere. The, the word walk has the idea of dwelling with someone. It is not sort of out for a stroll. It's how we act, how we conduct ourselves in relationship uh, with someone. Some of you have grown up in the church and you've heard the phrase, how's your walk with God, right? It comes from this reality, this Pauline reality, and really it comes back from a Hebrew reality of the word walking with God actually meaning dwelling with God. Where's the first place we hear about people walking with God? We go all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And what are they doing? They're living with God, right? They're in close proximity. They're dwelling. They're in communion. Uh, The Garden of Eden for God is the perfect realization of what creation is supposed to look like, you know? where people are in this perfect communion and relationship with God. It is unadulterated. It is unbroken. Uh, And we know that uh, the chapters of Scripture don't go too far until we realize that it's quickly broken because of the sinfulness of man, right? And so uh, the sinfulness of man creates this boundary between God. It's fascinating because the first time we ever see a barrier or a boundary between man and God is actually, again, in the Garden of Eden. Remember what God does? He stations angels at the entrance to keep man and woman from coming in because they've sinned against God. So what does it mean to walk worthy? Well, listen, when we are in perfect relationship and communion with God, when we are living into the image of God as God created us to do, we walk worthy. However, the Garden of Eden also tells us that when we live into our own image or trying to impress our own image or work for our own kingdom or go for our own selfish ambitions, then we live lives that are unworthy, outside of the garden, put aside. Fast forward a little bit in the story of God. God calls a man named Abram and says, from you I'm going to make a great people. Uh, your, Your descendants are going to be as numerous as the stars in the sky. And of course, this is huge news to Abraham. Uh, Because he's got no kids. And so God's going to do something miraculous and amazing again. Just as he had done when he started creation ex nihilo from out of nothing. He's going to do it again uh, through a man and a woman who can't have offspring, can't have kids. And of course God does this. And they have a son named Isaac. uh, And there's this beautiful thing. God says, I'm going to give you this land. It's going to be your land. We're going to dwell there together, God and and humanity. It's going to be as it should be. And he says, I'm going to bless you, and then in response, I want you to bless everyone. That's what it means to live worthy. Hear it again? You receive the blessing of God in this wonderful, perfect communion with God, and therefore share it with humanity around you. And God gives them this land to dwell in, but the story of the patriarchs, right? Abraham, his son Isaac, Isaac's son Jacob is a constant story of whenever circumstances get a little bit difficult, they leave the land of God's blessing. They create the barrier between God and man because they look for their own salvation in Egypt. 
There's famine where we are. Instead of turning to God, we're going to go to Egypt and find our own salvation. Living in the land of God, in perfect communion, walking worthy, leaving to find their own salvation, walking unworthy. Do you see it? See how it's developing here? Fast forward even farther. 400 years the Israelites lived in slavery in Egypt because the patriarchs refused to live in freedom in the land that God gave them. God miraculously is going to step in again. He's going to create something out of nothing. Uh, He calls a man named Moses uh, and he sends him back into Egypt from whence he came and says, you're going to you're going to lead my people out of here. It's going to be miraculous. We're going to do, I'm going to show you all kinds of signs. Fascinating things are going to happen. And in the Exodus, God once again rescues his people to set up redemption and reconciliation for them. And you remember, after all the miraculous things that happens, they come to the foot of this mountain, Mount Sinai, and Moses goes up the mountain, and God gives him the Ten Commandments, Right? And we look at the Ten Commandments, and it seems, wow, that's old. God's a rule giver. He writes them on stone. Interesting stuff. What we don't understand sometimes is that the Ten Commandments actually, uh, and really the whole law of Moses, actually is a wonderful gift of God's grace. Right? Because the Ten Commandments were never about, here's all the rules you better keep or else. In other words, I'm angry at you, and therefore I'm imposing these rules on you, And if you don't keep them, there's going to be trouble. That's not what the Ten Commandments are about. Here's what the Ten Commandments are about. I understand that you are people who are prone to go your own way. And I want you to live with me. I want to be in communion with you and in relationship with you. And so I'm going to make this covenant with you, whereby if you would just follow these things, we can be together. And you might say, well, he's still imposing rules, but sometimes we think about this differently. The Mosaic Covenant actually has freedom for sin. Did you know that? We sometimes think about the law and we think, oh man, God's really angry. You see all those rules he made? It's like it's all in the book of Leviticus, and that's why no one ever reads it. One, because it's boring. Two, because it's frightening, right? But in the book of Leviticus is Jesus. He shows up in every single sacrifice. Because what's really happening in the law is not God saying, here's all the ways that you should follow me, and I know you're not going to keep them because you're going to go your own way. He actually says, there's also provision in the law for when you don't follow me. That in sacrifice, our sin is covered, right? By blood. And so God is dealing with an unworthy people who are going to go their own way through a law that's going to make them worthy by covering their sin. You see it? And so following that, he starts, excuse me, following that, to, to make sense of that, he starts this whole covenant with a single command. He says, listen, how this is going to go for us to be together is that you can have no other gods besides me. And really in Old Testament language, in Hebrew language, this is really a marriage covenant. It's basically say, if we're going to be together, then it's got to be just us, right? And so, this is the way it's set up. That God is covering them. But of course, the rest of the Old Testament history tells us that the people can't even, in the midst of God's covering for their sin, still can't keep from going their own way. Still can't keep from shunning the sacrifices 
and following other gods for their salvation. And so they're sent into exile. And in the midst of exile, the prophets, especially the prophet Jeremiah, but also Isaiah, starts talking about this idea of God doing something new with his people. Jeremiah calls it a new covenant, Jeremiah chapter 31. He says, basically, summarizing into Paul's language, listen, even in a system where we've provided covering for sin, we have people who still go their own way. God says, the prophets begin to dream, there's going to be a day, God is telling me, when the law will no longer be something to follow with our minds and our actions, but it will be inscripted on our hearts. In other words, that people who are unworthy because they can't help but follow other gods are finally going to be worthy because someone is going to keep it for them. Fast forward all the way to Paul. When he says, walk worthy of God, when he says, walk worthy of the gospel, he's speaking right into this long tradition of what it means to dwell with God, to be where God is. And what he's saying is, in the person and work of Jesus, that new covenant that the prophets dreamed about from God has finally arrived. That in Jesus, finally our sins are covered once for all. Now listen, this is how it works. We have a people who even when there's covering, can't help but follow other gods. They are unworthy of God. Now the new prescription isn't just a covering, that's part of it, but also a uniting. And so now he says, because we are joined to Jesus, we are worthy. Why? Because Jesus is worthy. Do you see it? And so this whole... This whole language of walking worthy of God really comes down to the central idea of being joined to Jesus. How do you walk worthy of God? How are you someone who can dwell and be where God is? You can't. But Jesus can, and you're joined to Him. Do you see it? This is why the Gospel is so incredibly important in its full reality. So I just want to pause and say a few things about some, some realities that come straight out of this. I, I hope you're following with me, but if not, give me your attention in these moments, because this is so critically important. If you're like me, you grew up going to church, and all you heard was religion. In other words, you must do, you must do, you must be, you must be, toe the line, toe the line, or else. In other words, what they were saying is, what it means to walk worthy of God is to follow all of these rules. And if you step outside of the box, you are now unworthy. And therefore, can't be where God is. And that's all predicated on the belief that God is angry instead of God is loving. And it's all predicated also under the belief of an old covenant instead of a new covenant. What Paul is saying is not, you better keep all of these rules or else you can't walk worthy of God. What he's saying is, you can't walk worthy of God. End of story. So Jesus has done it for you. And if you would be joined to Him in relationship, 
Now you can walk worthy of God because Jesus has done it for you. You see it? So the Christian life then has nothing to do with following a huge checklist. It has everything to do with being joined to Jesus. It has nothing to do with having the highest percentage of church attendance. It has nothing to do with being the best at daily reading the Bible. All of these things, by the way, are fantastic. We'll talk about them in a second in a whole new way, right? It has nothing to do with with building morality and building religion. It has everything to do with admitting that you can't and trusting Jesus to do what you can't. In other words, to please God because you can't. Right? So, what that means for us then, what Paul is saying to live worthy of God, to live worthy of the gospel then, is to be people who live in response to what Jesus has done for us. As if Jesus is whispering to us, on the cross, or speaking to us in the garden from the empty tomb, saying, this is what I've done for you. Now live in response to it. Right? So, let's take a couple for examples. Do you come to church because you feel like if you don't, God is going to be upset with you? Or do you come to church because you need more of Jesus? You want to make sure that you hear the gospel more, that you apply it more. Two different ways of pursuing this idea of being worthy of God. One is religion, which is like shackles, and one is the gospel. Do you read the scriptures? Because if you feel like if you don't, God's going to be angry with you. And if you miss a second day, and a third day, and a fourth day, God's, His anger is building at you, and something bad is going to happen to you because you aren't doing that. Or do you read the Scriptures because you realize, hey, wait a minute, everything is different in my life now because of the Gospel, and so I need more of it in order to orient me in the right way. Do you see the difference? Do you see the difference of what Paul is writing about in terms of walking worthy of God? There is one sense in which we say, and many people in the church say, you must please God. Religion. Paul says... Jesus has pleased God. Now live in response to it. I've talked to many people who have had troubling relationships with their father. And it has troubled them their whole life. They've done everything they can to please their dad. And it seems like nothing is good enough. They get an A-. minus. Why isn't it an A? They get into, into, you know, Princeton, why isn't it Harvard? You know? They're a pediatrician, why aren't they a cardiologist? Whatever. Or maybe it isn't even the spoken realities of their dad. Maybe their dad is a, a stoic kind of guy and they're trying to please him with everything they do, just desperate for their father to tell them that he loves them and they never get it. And so everything they do is trying to earn their favor with their dad. Many people have come to realize this. Many people are living this way and don't realize it yet. Many of us pursue God in the exact same way. Right? 
I gotta earn his love for me. I gotta work harder. I gotta be better. I gotta do more. And every time we screw up, think about it. Just, just in your mind right now, don't, don't speak it out loud unless you're really brave. In your mind right now, remember, just remember your last really huge screw up. Right? Just remember it. Like you just like totally lost your cool with your kids. And if anyone saw you, they'd have been mortified, right? Uh, or or you, you and your spouse lost it, or you, know, you lost it with your employer, or better yet, you lost it internally with your employer because you would never tell them out loud, but the things you said about them in your mind were really bad, you know? I don't know. Just think about your last huge screw-up. And then ask yourself an honest question. What are God's thoughts about it? Does he love you less? Was he so angry at you because you did that? I mean, maybe you're different than me, but so much of my response to those things is, man, I've screwed up again. I've messed it up again. And Paul's talking about a whole different way of living here. Do you see it? He's talking about being liberated and living in light of it rather than always living in fear of it. So now we choose the right thing. We choose to honor our kids instead of assert our authority over them. We choose to live in obedience to our bosses. We choose to live in harmony with our spouses. We choose all of these things not because we're afraid of a punitive God, but because we believe that God loves us so much that we want to honor Him. My dad, uh, just like me, is a, is a good German boy. We don't, we don't say a lot of things. We certainly don't emote a lot, right? I always knew my dad loved me, and uh, there were plenty of major screw-ups in my life, and one of the, one of the most somber realities of the many screw-ups of my life was having to come and tell my dad. Uh, my dad could, could dole out punishment, for sure. I, but that, I wasn't worried about that. I wasn't worried about him hating me or not loving me. I was worried about letting him down. I was worried about disappointing him. I was worried about being someone who didn't honor him. You see the difference? We're talking about the living in light of trying to honor God trying to be someone who, who is known by the fact that we are loved by the one who gave us life, rather than someone who is trying to earn the love of someone who is an authoritarian over us. This is what it means to be people who are worthy of God, to be people who are worthy of the gospel. And so Paul's saying, so live in light of this. And this becomes the central reality of this passage of Scripture. Everything is leading up to this point. And so then the natural question as we kind of dive back into 1 Thessalonians 2 is, so okay, good, so like, how do we do that? Because we're, we're all people like that. Like, okay, you've made the big point here, but like, I don't know how to do that. Tell me how to do that. And Paul gives two things, right? N- neither of these are easy, so this is, not a, this is not a quick fix for our circumstances. The two ways that we dive into the gospel, that we're immersed in the gospel, the people who are changed by the gospel and therefore uh, are called to live worthy of God, as it were. Two things. The first is that he proclaims the gospel, right? This ministry is known by proclaiming the gospel. Uh, And that seems so obvious, and yet we struggle at that. 
For many of us, the gospel is simply the message that gets us in to the family of God. And for, for not a lot of us, the gospel is the message that continually changes our reality and relationship with God. We need the gospel every day. Not just once several years ago. Every single day, we need to be reminded that God loves us. He laid down, Jesus laid down his life for us. That he took our place. And that this isn't just some future reality that, that one day when you die, you get to go to heaven. That's like a, that's like a you know, a last feather in the cap. It's about changing your life now. It's about opening you up to the whole reality that Paul actually suggests that you can walk worthy of God now. That you can have the abundant life that Jesus promised now. In the future, yes, for sure. But in part now, yes, also. So we need to be people who are proclaiming the gospel constantly. Not just for entrance into the kingdom of God, but for continually refocusing our mind on our relationship to God. We want to live in close proximity to God. What is the key? The gospel. Right? It's not more Bible reading, but you should read the Bible because what's in there? The gospel is in there, right? It's not more church attendance, but you should come to church. Why? Because the gospel is announced there, right? It's not trying to get better at something because if you work hard enough, you can really conquer those things. It's hearing the gospel that you are loved even though you fail at those things and therefore it changes you and actually makes you want to be someone who isn't defined by those things. A whole different way of living. So Paul gives us an example that really I want to suggest to you if we would live fully into this would radically change our lives. He submits the fullness of his existence to the proclamation of the gospel. Remember he references in this chapter, you know what happened to us in Philippi. <laughs> he says that. And, and they know that because he came to them on the heels of what happened in Philippi. Uh, if you're unfamiliar with the story of Paul and Philippi, Paul proclaimed the gospel and he got beaten for doing it. Physically beaten. Put in stocks, thrown in prison. The end seemed assured until there was that miraculous earthquake, right? And then Paul comes to Thessalonica, I'm sure glad to be gone from Philippi, and within three weeks of being in Thessalonica, a mob erupts because they don't like this guy Paul because he's affecting business and he's, and he's uh, according to them, proclaiming another, uh, another Lord beyond Caesar. And they come and they corner him in, in this guy named Jason's house. And eventually, after a very short time of being in Thessalonica, he's evicted from the town. Ultimately ends up in Athens. Right? Paul's example to them that he's going back to here in terms of showing them how you go to live a life worthy of God is that you actually put your full physical existence in submission to the proclamation of the gospel. In other words, what is the number one reality of your daily life? It's got to be making the gospel known. Can I let you in on a little secret? It's great when you make the gospel known to your friends. It's great when you make the gospel known to people who haven't heard it. 
but you better be making it known to yourself. Better be making it known to yourself. And the second reality, and, and I, let me read this again to you, because it's so fascinating to me. Really, it's the only place we hear this dynamically spoken from Paul. But, really, but if you look in all of his different circumstances, you see the same thing happening. It's fascinating to me. Uh, chapter 2, 1 uh, Thessalonians, verse 8. He says, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we we're delighted to, to, number one, share the gospel with you. To number two, but also to share with you our lives as well. The word lives really means souls, like the full essence of who we are. But Paul is saying, in order basically to live lives worthy of the gospel, two things have to happen. One, you've got to submit your full self to the proclamation of the gospel. And two, you've also got to submit your full self to each other. Got to be together in community. So, what Paul understood is that the gospel doesn't just need to be proclaimed, it also needs to be cultivated. And the truth is, this only happens in biblical community. Cultivation only happens in biblical community. It's why, it's why in the church today we have so many people who know so much about theology and the scriptures and have such a very shallow faith. Because they come on Sundays, and they hear, and they learn, 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 and there's no cultivation. No cultivation. It's all head knowledge. Paul says, no, I share the gospel with you, but my life as well. Hey, the modern world is a world full of binary realities. You know what binary means? It means either or, right? It's one or the other. It's heads or tails. Uh, in, in the postmodern world, there's a whole lot of work being done to smash binaries. You say heads or tails, I say it's a coin, right? Uh, and, and in the binary realities, you see almost all the time things like this. Well, we're either going to focus on proclaiming the gospel or we're going to focus on being relational. And never the two shall meet, Right? But the truth is that it's got to be both or else there is no biblical community. Where you have the gospel proclamation, you have education. Right? Where you have shared lives, you have relationships. But where you have shared lives in the gospel being proclaimed, you have biblical community because you have people growing in the gospel together. And friends, we need to look nowhere else than to the ministry of Jesus to see this reality. Because the ministry of Jesus was not known most by a series of great sermons. In fact, we really only have one section in the Bible that's titled a sermon by Jesus. Right? It's fascinating. It's Revolutionary. It's a fantastic sermon. You know, the Sermon on the Mount's unbelievable. But the rest of the ministry of Jesus is cultivating shared lives. And tons of sermons and teaching happening, but not in this big Sunday morning sort of reality. You see it? It's always, hey, I'm going to go with, my, with 12. We're going to go do this together. And while we're doing it, I'm going to talk to you about the gospel. And the truth is, Jesus knew 
that these 12 were going to take the message to the ends of the earth. And if he just came and told them about it time and time again, they wouldn't get it. And we know he was right because when he was arrested and went to the cross, they all ran away. But it was ultimately the cultivation of the relationship and connection to him that brought them back. True biblical community only happens. The gospel is proclaimed and lives are shared. There's a few reasons for this, I think. The first is that you, you can't really share your lives outside of the gospel. Shared lives happen because of the gospel. Now, there's cohabitation, there's friendships, there's all kinds of things, but, but truly sharing life can't happen outside of the gospel. And we have this beautiful picture of it in Acts chapter 2, right? Acts chapter 2 is the picture of the early church, and we are always fascinated by the church in Acts because it looks nothing like our churches, right? They're saying things like, hey, they share everything they have. Whoa, wait a minute. You know, I'll give you the things I'm not really interested in right now, but I've got a couple of things here that I'm not interested in sharing over here, right? You know, I said that they met the needs of each other as most as they could. They had everything in common, it said. Think about that for a minute. They had everything in common. How is that even possible? Have you ever had everything in common with anyone else before? It's, it's humanly impossible, right? You always find something about someone that is like, ooh, man, if, if that would change, this could be great. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's no way. We don't have everything in common with all these people. But there's this picture in the church in Acts, they had everything in common. You know why? It's the gospel, right? Because the gospel had become that important that every personal preference was underneath it. And you only have that kind of shared life when that transformed reality happens. And Acts chapter 2, reality. Shared lives, true shared lives, not just cohabitation, not just deep friendships, whatever. True shared lives only happen because of the gospel. The second reality is true too, is that this seems pretty logical and pretty simple to understand, but that gospel proclamation is given credibility by shared lives. Right? I mean, one of the whole reasons Paul is writing this whole section is because he was with this church for a really short time and then got kicked out. And I'm quite certain, and most scholars agree with this, that what was happening in Thessalonica after Paul's radical eviction was a massive smear and shame campaign on the ministry of Paul. Right? Hey, this guy, he's just out for the money. This guy was just here to try to scam you and and use you and all of these things. It's why Paul is making comments like, hey, I never asked you for a dime. I worked hard while I was with you. Paul actually worked a job while he did all of these things. He's saying, I'm not one of these charlatan preachers who comes and asks for your money and goes on to the other things. And the one piece of evidence he keeps going to to prove it is that he shared his life with them, not just the gospel message. Did you hear it? So shared lives give the gospel message credence. (laughs) We've all heard the phrase, win the right to be heard, right? Win the right to be heard. That is, put more kind of bluntly, 
hey, listen, if someone doesn't trust you because they've seen you, they're not going to listen to you. Right? It's the same reality. Shared lives and gospel together. And then the last thing is this. That, that shared lives actually embolden our commitment to the gospel. Shared lives actually embolden our commitment to the gospel. Fascinating but true. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 24 and 25, very famously says what? Let us spur each other on to love and good deeds. Right? We love that verse. And then what does it say right after it? And do not give up meeting together. Why? Because that's where the spurring on to love and good deeds happens. Right? Let us spur one another on to love and good deeds and do not give up meeting together because it's in the shared lives that the emboldening of the gospel happens. This is a great, fantastic book called Life Together by a man named Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You should know Dietrich Bonhoeffer. If you don't know him, uh, know him. Uh, he, he was uh, an amazing man of God who uh, was a German theologian serving in a seminary in America at the outbreak of the Nazi rise to power. Felt compelled by God that he had to go be with his people when he was in the safety of America because so many in the church were caving to the, to the Nazi regime and the Nazi propaganda. And so he returned to Germany and sort of led a, an underground sort of resistance in the Christian church to the Nazi movement. And that doesn't go over well with the SS and the likes, right? So he was quickly in prison and ultimately killed by the end of the war for his resistance to the Nazi movement. And in prison, he formed this, this remarkable biblical community with other believers who were imprisoned together. And he writes this little book called Life Together about their experience together. And this is one of the central things that he says, which is so fascinating to me. He says that it's community that strengthens us by our shared lives and love. What did he mean by strengthens us? He's talking about the gospel. Strengthens us in our resolve, in our commitment to the cause of Christ over the cause of the Nazis or the cause of college advancement in Lehigh or the cause of the upward movement of the workforce in our world, or the cause of being superior in your job, or the cause of being the best parent you can be so that you can have honor there. Do you see it? It's in shared lives that we find the strength to resist all the narratives that the world wants to impose on us and instead hold firm to the narrative of the Gospel. Maybe a little more crassly put, uh, it's in community and shared lives where we actually learn what it means to be gospel people. Because it is somewhat easy to take in all of this gospel language. Jesus forgave us. God had grace with us. God loves us. So what does it mean to be gospel people? We're forgiving. We're gracious. We're loving. All of these things, right? And in theory, this makes all kinds of sense. And then you get asked to live with people. And you have to forgive them. And you have to be gracious with them. And you have to love them. And suddenly you actually begin to grow 
in what it means to be defined by the gospel. Listen, your head knowledge about the gospel doesn't go very deep. It's when you actually begin to share lives together that you actually begin to understand the gospel in its most profound ways. For those of you uh, who have had the blessing of having kids, you know this, right? You thought you knew what it meant for God to love you as a son or a daughter. And then you had a kid. And your kids, as they grow up, when they're little, whatever, they do all kinds of things to annoy you, don't they? Right? Like, from day one, I began to be annoyed with my kids because they cried at inopportune times, because I was not good at helping them to not cry. I was, right? So they do all of these things, and then as they get older, they get their own will and their own ways, and they do all these things, and yet you have this unrelenting love for them that seemingly can't be diverted, even in their, their mess of constant mishaps and errors and pride and selfishness. And suddenly the gospel that was once theoretically accepted now makes a whole lot more sense, right? And listen, it's not just parents and kids. It's when you experience it in deep friendships in other ways too. Right? It's in the praxis of shared lives, that we begin to really see the deep growth of the gospel happen in our lives. It kind of happens in three ways, I think, and we'll finish with this. Paul says, you saw me live before you. How we were blameless and so forth and so on. Right? The first way it happens, this was in praxis and community, is that it happens through observation. Right? We see people who are actually trying to live in light of the gospel and were compelled to do likewise. Now, in Paul's case, they saw someone who, who said he was blameless. In the rest of our cases, they'll see people who are at times blameless and at times very full of blame, right? And the truth is, you see the gospel in both of those, you know? And then he says, then the, the, and I also encourage you, he says, and I comfort you. And thirdly, he says, I urge you to be people who live worthy of the gospel. Three words he uses there, and they are three fascinating words. Two of them use the preposition or the, the prefix on the verb para, which means close or near or with. And the other one speaks about testifying in the midst of. All three of these words are about someone speaking to them who is living with them. Do you see it? I'm urging you. I'm encouraging you. I'm pressing you to be people who live worthy of the gospel. And I have the right to say it because I'm doing it with you. Most of us yell that stuff at people from afar. Right? Few of us do it in this gospel-centered way because we're actually living with them. Fascinatingly enough, the first word is, hey, I just speak the truth. I give you evidence. The second word is, the, the second word comforting is, I speak it soothingly to you. And the third word is, I testify to you. See the, trans, the, the way it moves? Here's what I see in you. I love you, and, and I know it can be different. And I speak from experience because I see the same thing in me. Do you see it? Fascinating. This only happens in community. It doesn't happen in a sermon. It doesn't happen on a podcast. It doesn't happen in a book. 
Those are Paul's examples. And as I finish, let me just give you one other sort of quick exhortation that is completely not here in this passage of Scripture, but I think fits. In James chapter 5, there's all this speak about healing. There's this fascinating verse. It says, confess your sins to one another and you will be healed. What would it mean to confess our sins together? Friends, I can't help but think that the true intersection of shared lives and gospel is confession. And that there's something really beautiful portrayed in James chapter 5 that although it speaks to physical healing and is true, also speaks to spiritual healing and is true. That when we have the vulnerability in ourselves and the trust in those who we share lives with to say, here's where I'm struggling, is when we find the deepest healing in our lives. And we wonder why so much of Christianity is so shallow and stunted in its growth. Can I suggest to you that confession is nowhere near a regular part of our spiritual disciplines, certainly not in community. I get it. It's hard. It's difficult. And no one's asking you to start with the deepest, darkest secrets. But you would be amazed at how unbelievably liberating and freeing it is to share with one or two others the struggles you are having and to have the experience of them saying to you, I get it. And I love you. And I'll walk with you. Shared lives meet the gospel. This is where the most dynamic growth happens. And this is why being together is so important. Can I pray with you?